The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, let's get right into the message tonight. Let's uh, just get started with things. And if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 1, we're still, I'm still deciding on what the next series of messages is going to be. I probably won't decide that until after the first of the year. And so until then, I'll do what I've been doing the past few Sunday nights, and that's taking some different topics to discuss. And this evening, I'd like to use just this one verse of Scripture as the text in Philippians 1, verse 21. Uh, It's a verse that I love, as most Christians do. And it's really an astounding thought that was real for Paul, but I'm afraid not very real in the lives of most believers. Now, most of you, even before you get to this verse, you know what it is because it's so familiar to us. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 21, Paul said... For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The Apostle Paul was consumed with Christ. And if there's one verse that we could pick out of all the words that Paul wrote, all the epistles that he wrote to the churches, and then to what he wrote to Timothy, to Titus, and so on, and if he wrote the book of Hebrews, which I feel myself that he did, If there's one verse that we could pick out that summarizes what Paul is, what Paul believed, what his ministry was all about, it is this one verse in Philippians 1, verse number 21. This characterizes his life. It summarizes the life that he lived after he came to know Jesus Christ. Now, you may remember in reading in the book of Philippians that the Apostle Paul put no value on his life. That is, the life that he lived before Christ, he put actually absolutely no value upon it. And he summarized also what his life was before he came to Christ in Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse number 4. And his conclusion was that before Christ came in, his life was nothing, that it was refuse, and in the third chapter, there he, he, we show how that Paul rejected what the world thought was a very impressive resume. Now, if you look in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 8, Paul says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he have whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Now Philippians 1.21 is the life that Paul lived at the time that he wrote the book of Philippians. It was a different life. It was, it was wholly dedicated to his Lord and Savior. Now amazingly, as he thought about his life, it was still nothing. At least... 
what he was in himself. It was still nothing. What he did really didn't matter. All that mattered to him was Christ and the life of Christ in him, what Christ could do through him. And so the all-consuming passion of his entire life was to do what Christ wanted him to do, to live as close as he could to the one who had saved him. Now, this verse in Philippians 1.21 is perhaps the most sublime of all of Paul's thoughts. Now, as we read Scripture, especially passages like we find in Romans and, and Ephesians and some of the other places that Paul wrote, he has some just mind-boggling statements that he makes, it's, it's sublime thoughts that the Apostle Paul has. But this one, I think, probably is the most sublime of all. And probably, at least I don't think there's, there likely has not been another person since the Apostle Paul that lived this statement to the fullness that Paul did. Now, I think that all of us, including the preacher here tonight, we find ourselves short of this goal, that we are completely consumed with Christ. But nonetheless, that's what the goal is. We have to struggle towards that goal. And even though we might feel that we're not going to reach that, yet I think it's something we do need to talk about so that we can finally or hopefully get to this spiritual plane where Paul lived. Now, if he lived there, being a human and being saved, just like you and I, we have the possibility of doing what he did. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'd like each of you to think honestly for just a minute. What does it mean to live? What is life to you? And I don't want you to answer that question out loud. I just want you to think about that. What does it actually mean to live? Now, this past summer, as we usually do, we had a house full of grandkids. We have uh, six now. Is it six? <laughs> six, I think. Uh, there is a seventh on the way, and we don't know how many we're going to end up with because we don't know how many that Clarice is going to grant the privilege of life. Uh, we just don't know. But I watch those kids play when they visit with us, and, uh, you know, I watch their actions, and, you know, they're so cute, and, and I really love this. When they come up to me and they hug me and they say something like, I love you, Papaw. And when that happens, you know, you think at that moment, well, this, this is the best life that you can possibly live. My life is consumed with my wife and my kids, my grandkids, the house that I live in, uh, the job that I do here, uh, preaching the Word of God. My life is consumed with those things. And when I think about what is life and what's, what it's really like to live, most of the time I'm thinking about those kinds of things. But the Apostle Paul in this uh, in this moment of reflection that he had about what life really means and what it is, his thoughts didn't run to family. Um, he, he, really was, he wasn't married. He didn't have any children. But his thoughts never ran to things like that. It had nothing to do with that. It had nothing to do with his work per se. But, but his whole life was, was Jesus Christ. It's nothing but him. To him, to live is Christ. Now, interestingly, in the original language, uh, there is no verb in the middle of each of these phrases. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And you can tell that by looking at your King James Version that the word is there is in italics. And that means the word is not there. And so Paul is simply saying here, to live Christ, to die gain. And again, get this thought in your mind. Christ was everything to Paul. Now what was the secret to that? 
if you want to call it a secret. How did he write with joy and gladness when things were going terribly wrong? Well, everything is Christ, whether living or dying was Christ to him. So whatever Christ wanted, that was it. And his life was not going to collapse because there were certain things in his life that were going wrong at the time. Family is wonderful. Uh, Work may or may not be wonderful. The material things that we have, that's wonderful. There's not anything wrong with any of those things. But if there should be trouble in one of those areas, for most of us as Christians... When those areas get affected, we are simply devastated. Whether it's family, whether it's the work that we have, if something goes wrong in those areas, we are devastated by that. Now, if you're not a Christian, you, you really don't, you could be overwhelmed by that. And you don't have a way to cope with that. But even if you are a Christian and you have the capacity to deal with that, yet we often find ourselves in depression because of those things. And what we really need to do to get rid of that depression and and wondering what's going to happen to us is to get closer and closer to Paul's thinking. Now, what I want to do as my first thought this evening in the message is to examine what Paul thought about Christianity. What was Christianity to him? And we're going to look at that through a series of negatives. So the first thing that we want to talk about is Paul's doctrine of Christianity. And there are many people that are just mixed up about what Christianity really is. They start to think of things that are attendant to Christianity, and they start to substitute those things for the essence of what it really is, but these things are not Christianity. Now, what are things that are attendant to Christianity but aren't actually the real thing? Well, first we would say that Christianity is not Christians. Now, we thank the Lord for that because if Christianity was Christians, it would be a colossal failure. I mean, really, the source of much of the trouble that we have in Christianity is Christians. Most of the time, much of the time, what I spend my sermon time doing and studying time doing is unraveling everything that Christians have done to Christianity, You think about that for a minute. We spend a lot of time, don't we, talking about doctrine and how people are so mixed up on doctrine and we just have to look at this thing. Christians have made a colossal mess out of Christianity. Now, humanly speaking, Christianity became an endangered species even to the possibility of extinction from those who practice Christianity. Now, this is really a big if, but... If it hadn't been for God and his sovereign power over all affairs, Roman Catholicism would have rid the world of Christianity during the Dark Ages. There were millions and millions of people that were killed by Roman Catholics, I mean, true believers in Jesus Christ. And if it had not been for the providence of God, Roman Catholicism still today would be rampant persecutors throughout the world. Now, if if God had not made a promise that he was going to preserve the true church, none of us would actually know what true Christianity is. Well, that was a satanic attack that God overthrew. But that didn't mean that Satan quit. No, Satan is still busy at this, and he's working through people who identify themselves as Christians. Some of them are false, but also some of them are real. False ones will pervert the gospel of Christ. False ones will preach a false gospel in one way or another. They're going to pervert Christianity. There are people like the cults who actually pervert Christ himself. 
tear down Christ himself, and at the same time, they claim that they're Christians. But the real ones, I mean, real Christians are often the ones that do the most harm. People look at the church and uh, those who have been saved, and they look at their lives. They look at their ruinous testimonies, and they think, if that's what Christianity is, then I don't want to have any part of it. When you see, or when unbelievers see depressed Christians and unfaithful Christians, then what they're actually seeing is the hypocrisy of Christianity. They see the claims of Christ that go unfulfilled. And that's why Christianity cannot be Christians, because if it was, it never would have survived. Now, secondly, Christianity is not the church. Now, the church is a collection of Christians. Uh, If Christians are not Christianity, then a collection of Christians can neither be Christianity. Now, understand that the church is the most important institution on the face of the earth. Uh, Christians ought to be in churches. It's Christ's church that he gave the responsibility of doing his work in the world. It's the instrument for doing God's work. But the institution of the church is not Christianity. And there are some people who think, well, if I can just become a member of a church, get joined up with the church somewhere, then I'll have this thing of Christianity down. And so they go and they join churches, and it really doesn't mean anything more to them than joining a club, whether it's the Elks Club or or the Kiwanis Club or something like that. Uh, Joining some churches is a socially acceptable thing to do. And in fact, there are many churches that exist for that very purpose. They're the club. They're the social thing that you go to become a member of. It was certainly that way, and where I'm from, the Bible Belt, I've mentioned to you before, a church right up the street from where we live, not, not a mile away from me, had over 10,000 members. And you'd never hear the gospel of Christ preached there. It was the social thing to do. It's the place to go where all the business leaders are a member of, and people go and join a church like that because it's their club. It's like their Boy Scout Troop 97 or the Boy Scout Troop 53 or whatever. It's the club that they belong to. Well, true churches are attendant to Christianity, but they're not Christianity. They're a consequence of Christianity, a necessary one, but the church is not Christianity. Thirdly, Christianity is not ceremonies. And that's where a lot of people put their hope. To be a Christian means, well, you have to be confirmed, or you have to go through certain steps, or a Christian means that you have to step down into the baptistry, you have to get dunked, or you have to get sprinkled with a few drops of water. Or they think that Christianity is the priest who puts a wafer on your tongue and then he says some hocus-pocus over it and he turns the wafer into the flesh of Jesus Christ and then he says a few more words and he turns the wine into the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you take that, then that means that you're a Christian. Or if you go through the rituals of fingering the rosary beads and you say your Hail Marys and all the things that go with that and the Our Fathers and all of those things, that's what Christianity consists of. And so many people become enamored with all the ceremonies that they go through, the rituals, whether they're real or imagined, and to them that is their Christianity. But those ceremonies are not Christianity. Fourthly, Christianity is not creeds. Christianity is not learning a catechism. It's not reciting a confession of faith. Christianity is not taking an oath. You know, I've run into many people, and you ask them, are you a Christian? 
And they start off with the wrong answers. Oh, well, I went to Catholic school. I learned the Apostles' Creed or I, I completed the entire catechism. And some of them will say, well, Grandpa was a preacher. And that's their answer to what Christianity is. But none of those things are Christianity. Not Christians, not the church, not ceremonies, not creeds. None of those things cause Paul to say things like this. In whatever state I am, therewith to be content. None of those things were enough to sustain him and to cause him to endure prison and suffer persecution, mental and physical. None of them were able, enabled him to get up after preaching a message and being stoned for it, to preach another message right after that. None of those things could have done that for him because those things aren't Christianity. Christianity is not a thing. It's not a movement. It's not an influence. But this is what Christianity is. Christianity is Christ. And I think that you know that. Christianity is Christ. Christianity is a person. Christianity is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he said to live Christ and to die gain. So Paul's doctrine of Christianity consists of this. It is Christ. And you can leave the is out of that equation if you want to. You can be a Bill Clinton and say, well, is doesn't really matter because it doesn't here. Is is not in here if you don't want it to be Christianity Christ. And you can say it as simple as that. Christianity Christ. You learn him, you love him, you trust him, and then you have Christianity. Now that leads me to the second observation of this text, and that is Paul's life in Christ. What is his life in Christ? What did that consist of? Well, first of all, it was his faith in the Savior. His, his life was, first of all, that Christ is the Savior. More importantly, we might say that Christ was his personal Savior. To speak of Christ, knowing Christ, means that you've given up all the confidence that you have in self. The reason that there are many people that never come to faith in Christ is that they trust so many other things. They trust the ceremonies, they trust the rituals, and they're unwilling to come to Christ in helplessness, admitting that it's impossible to save themselves. And so their ceremonies actually become the contribution that they give in order to help Christ save them. Now, unfortunately, there are also those who make faith itself the cause of salvation. But faith is not salvation. Faith is the instrument. It's not the cause Salvation is by God's grace through faith. Grace is in God and it's the favor of God. And what God does is he uses faith as the instrument for us to recognize that he has given grace. Faith has an object. And the object must be the one who is Christianity. Now that person, of course, again, is Christ. So ceremonies don't save the recitations of the creeds, the recitals, and all of those things of certain words, whether it's a rosary, whether it's a prescribed prayer, whether it's a liturgy, those are not things that are ever going to save anyone. Faith's object must be Christ. It's faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and in what Christ did to, etern to secure eternal salvation for those that exercise faith. And so whenever you add anything to faith, you no longer have saving faith. And there were many people in Paul's day that tried to do that. Uh, he was constantly refuting legalism. P 
people that said things like, well, you have to have circumcision in order to be saved. Now, if you ever wonder what circumcision is in the theological argument where we're arguing about faith only, this is what circumcision is. It's actually something that's been added to faith alone, something that's been added to the gospel message. Now, in Paul's day, of course, it was literal, physical circumcision. But today, it would be things like baptism and the church membership, sacraments that uh, churches say that you have to keep, whether and then philanthropy and humanitarianism, and the list goes on and on. Anything that you add to faith in Christ alone turns it into something that is not saving faith. And so, in this theological argument of faith alone is our justification, circumcision stands for anything that's added to faith alone. Now, Christ is the only thing, only Christ. And so, people that aren't saved are the ones that really just think that they have to help God do it. But there's only one saving gospel that produces life in Christ, and that's what Christ did, and nothing at all about what we do. Now, secondly, Paul's life was about following the Savior. And when Jesus called his disciples, he had two simple words for them. He said, follow me. Life in Christ is to follow him. And and that simply means living his life. Let's qualify that just a little bit because what we can never do, we can never actually live the life of Christ. None of us can do that. Christ walked on water. We can't do that. He turned water into wine. We can't do that. He did many things, John said, in the end of his gospel account. He said there are many things that he did that prove that he is the Savior, that he is the Messiah of the world. We can't live his life in that way, but he can live his life through us. And that's what we do when we follow him. Now, for the disciples, when they heard those words, follow me, it, it, had a, it had a physical element that was attached to it because they were there with Christ. They could actually see him. They could literally walk with him. They could go to the same places that he went. They can step in the same steps that he stepped. And that's what Jesus wanted them to do in many instances. He wanted them to go where he was, to follow him in that way, so they could do what he did. He wanted to demonstrate what he was doing. He wanted them to do what, what he did. But the words follow me obviously have to have with that a spiritual element also. And when, when I was in Israel, Gary and I were in Israel, uh, I was just so impressed when we went to one particular place, and I think I've told you about it before, but we went to the archaeological discovery or uncovering of that ancient city in Galilee, Bethsaida. And there was one particular place there where they had uncovered a street that they were reasonably, about 99% sure, I think, that this street would have been one that Jesus walked on. They, they said with some certainty that Jesus walked on these very stones. Now, you understand that when you go to Israel and maybe you talk about walking in the footsteps of Jesus or walk where Jesus walked, you aren't actually walking where Jesus walked. You go to Jerusalem, and you're not in the city. Even the old city of Jerusalem is not where Jesus walked. That part is buried under layers and layers and layers of rubble from all the different centuries. Even some of that's been excavated. But you don't actually walk on streets where Jesus walked. And so to go to this particular place in Bethsaida and to see where they had uncovered this this street, 
I, I was sitting there looking at that, and I sat down for just a few minutes while the rest of our group moved on, and I just sort of stood, sat there and stared at the stones. And I just imagined that. Imagine that Jesus walked on these very stones. And that was impressive to me. It was a very moving thing to me. I could actually walk on the very stones where Jesus walked. There was one songwriter who wrote, I walked today where Jesus walked and felt his presence there. Now, I'm not a charismatic by any means, as you know. And so I, I, I didn't have some kind of a spiritual experience where Jesus appeared to me while I was looking at those stones. But there was a sense that in viewing that and thinking what, about what Christ had done for me, I had the sense that I felt the presence of Jesus there. So I walked on those stones, and I stepped on those stones where he stepped. But I understand that following Jesus is much more than being able to walk on a street where Jesus walked. Spiritually, my life in Christ is to follow him. Now, there's a song that we sang at the end of our services for quite a while entitled, I Then Shall Live. And I love the words of that song because I think they do express what it means to follow Jesus. Let me read those words to you. I then shall live as one who's been forgiven. I'll walk with joy to know my debts are paid. I know my name is clear before my Father. I am his child and I am not afraid. So greatly pardoned, I'll forgive my brother. The law of love I gladly will obey. I then shall live as one who's learned compassion. I've been so loved that I'll risk loving too. I know how fear builds walls instead of bridges. I dare to see another's point of view. And when relationships demand commitment, then I'll be there to care and follow through. Your kingdom come around and through and in me. Your power and glory, let them shine through me. Your hallowed name, oh, may I bear with honor. And may your living kingdom come in me. The bread of life, oh, may I share with honor. And may you feed a hungry world through me. Now you look at the last line. The writer says, you may feed a hungry world through me. And surely the author's intent there must have been much more than thinking about physical food. Jesus taught his disciples to feed the hungry, to give to the poor. Uh, he did do that. But more importantly than that, what Jesus did was to give the bread of life. Jesus gave the gospel. He gave people living water. And that's what Paul's life was. It consisted of faith and following Jesus Christ in doing this very thing, giving them the bread of life and living water. Now, thirdly, we can say that Paul's life in Christ was fellowship with the Savior. Fellowship is the communion that he had with Christ. Fellowship is the closeness that we have with him. That's when we really do feel that he's working through us. Recently, I've, I've had some conversations with uh, church members at different times on the issue of assurance of salvation. And one of the things I ask when people, or some of the things I ask when people are having a problem with assurance, that I'll ask them things like this. Have you ever felt the conviction and the moving of the Holy Spirit in you? Have you had answers to your prayers? Have you ever felt chastisement? Now, if you feel those kinds of things, then 
you know that you're God's child, and one of two things might be happening. Either you are in fellowship, and you just need to get straightened up and have some things corrected, or the Holy Spirit is moving you into the place where you will be in fellowship, taking all the steps that are necessary to secure a life of obedience from you. And so what we really have to be careful about is that we don't let anything push out and crowd out the fellowship that we must have with Christ. Now, sometimes... We're just too busy for Christ. We overlook the real time that we need to just give him in fellowship. This is what I was talking about this past Sunday morning. I was talking about Mary and Martha. And the difference between Mary and Martha was that Martha was simply too busy. She was busy with all the work that she had to do. And so she never took time just to sit down at the feet of Jesus. And so it was Mary, not Martha, that actually worshipped him supremely. Now, this is just a sampling of a lot of things that we could say about faith and following and fellowship. These are all themes that if you read through the book of Philippians, you'll find Paul's life of peace and joy and contentment was consumed with Jesus Christ. But then there's one more observation to make about the verse. It doesn't stop with life. It also speaks of death. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So thirdly, we need to look at Paul's death with Christ. He said to die is gain. Now, every time I preach a funeral of someone who's a believer, the message is to die is gain. This is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, another familiar passage. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now, death was not really a major concern for Paul. If you back up to verse number 20 in the first chapter... He said that Christ would be magnified whether it was in his life or in his death. He says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Now many people believe that when the Apostle Paul wrote Philippians, that he was chained to a Roman soldier maybe even two Roman soldiers. And so as he was sitting there every day, chained to those soldiers, he wasn't thinking, what's going to happen to me next? What, what bad thing's going to happen to me next? I really don't know what to do about my life and, and whether I'm, they're going to kill me or what they're going to do with me, do with me. He didn't worry about things like that. He says that death was gain. Now, later on, he would write about how it was better for those that he ministered to, better for his converts that he should live, at least for the present time. But as far as he was concerned, if he was to die, that's gain. It's no problem. Now let me quickly, quickly give you three reasons why he wasn't afraid of dying. Now the first is the gain of rejoicing. Paul knew where he was going. That makes a huge difference, does it? doesn't it? Knowing where you're going. He knew that heaven was the destination and heaven is a place of rejoicing. And I think that Paul's life work caused a lot of rejoicing in heaven. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. 
And how many sinners were brought to Christ through the preaching of Paul? Churches were established all over the Roman Empire. And if you think about those in, in the book of Philippians, you remember where in the book of Acts that we read about the, these Philippian believers? Where the church started? It started in Acts chapter 16. There in verse 14, we read the story about Lydia. Going on, you read the story about the Philippian jailer and uh, Paul and Silas in the jail on that night when God sent an earthquake. And the jailer comes in, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And there were many, many people like that that were in Philippi. How much rejoicing in heaven was there because Paul was faithful to preach the gospel in the city of Philippi? And we're still preaching the very same gospel that Paul preached and heaven is still rejoicing because across the world where we send out our missionaries or here in Rohnert Park where we preach the gospel of Christ, when someone comes to Christ, that causes rejoicing in heaven. That's what Jesus said. Now the thing about the apostle Paul is that now he's in heaven and he gets the opportunity to see that from the other side. Now, he's rejoicing. He's there in heaven rejoicing every time we preach the gospel of people and they believe it. So he wasn't afraid to die because he knew he was going to the place of eternal rejoicing. Then, also, he wasn't afraid to die because of the gain of reunion. In 1 Corinthians, he said, Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And there's another great song that comes from that verse. Face to face with Christ my Savior, face to face, what will it be? When with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me. Paul had a face and face encounter with Jesus. That happened on the road to Damascus. One of the qualifications to be an apostle of Jesus Christ is that the person had to have seen the resurrected Christ. A qualification of an apostle is to be a witness of the resurrection. And that's why Jesus appeared to the apostle Paul. And he doesn't appear to people like that today. We don't have any more apostles today. Jesus is not appearing to people. The apostle Paul was seen by Jesus in order to make him a witness of the resurrection. But when Paul saw him, he didn't see him like the other apostles did. I mean, Paul never had the same opportunity that they had to have a have the person-to-person contact with, uh, with, with uh, Jesus as the apostles did. Now, the apostles, the others, were there for the earthly ministry of Jesus. They, they did spend time eating with him. They worked with him. They walked with him. Paul didn't have that opportunity. And that's one of the reasons why that he was always self-deprecating when he talked about his apostleship. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, I am the least of the apostles. While they walked with Jesus, at that particular time, Paul was persecuting those that walked with Jesus. And so with utmost gratitude, he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Paul wrote that because he was a blasphemer. He wrote it because he 
persecuted the people of God. And he never would have had another face-to-face encounter with Jesus if he hadn't surrendered to the will of Jesus Christ when God appeared to him, if he had not, when Christ appeared to him, if he had not said, Lord, what will you have me to do? There never would have been another face-to-face meeting with him. Paul wasn't afraid of dying because he knew there was going to be a reunion with the Christ that he saw on the road to Damascus. So, as the Word of God says, to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so he considered death to be a promotion. And so in every funeral, when I preach the funeral of a Christian, this is what we're talking about. Death is a promotion for them. Although it's very sad for us that are left behind, we don't like to live with the grief, but for the person who dies, it's always good. Death is promotion because it puts us in a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ. I had intended for this to be a part of the message, but I think maybe I should say this, that today we have this abundance of books that come out by people who say that they died and they went to heaven. And it's remarkable to me that in many of these books they talk about all the sights of things that they were supposed to have seen in heaven. I I, uh, read uh, or listened to something the other day about a fellow who said, was claiming that he talked with Peter and he had a conversation with Paul. He was talking all about heaven, but curiously absent from all of that, was Jesus Christ. I mean, the most prominent thing in heaven, the light of the city itself, how could you miss Jesus Christ? A few years ago, that book came out. I can't remember the author's name right off the top of my head, but he wrote the book 90 Minutes in Heaven. Total waste of time, so don't bother buying it and reading it. But 90 Minutes in Heaven, and all this vision that he claimed to have seen of heaven and visited there, not one time did he mention the Lord Jesus Christ. How is that possible? How does a person go to heaven and not see Christ? Well, when you die, when you go to heaven, that's the first person you're going to see. You'll see him first, and then you might concern yourself with visiting your relatives or whoever and the great apostles and all of that. You'll get to see them too, but first of all, you'll want to see Christ. I can promise you that. So the hope that Paul had of heaven was to see Jesus first of all. Then, perhaps all the others died in faith. So, death is gained because of the reunion. And then finally, Paul was not afraid of death because of the gain of rewards. There was a reward for him. Now, here's one of the things that I've heard, actually often heard preachers say, you should not serve Jesus for rewards. You should serve Jesus simply because you love him, not because there is a reward. And I understand the sentiments of that, and, and it sounds good, but it's not biblical. It sounds nice and noble to serve Jesus just because you love him and don't worry about the reward. We find in the Scriptures that if God had wanted us to serve him just because we love him, and now, now hear me on out on this, that he never would have given any incentives. He never would have talked about rewards. He would have skipped all the rewards, but he didn't do that. He offered rewards. Now, I said you have to hear all this, hear me all the way through, because you do have to understand this thing, that nobody is going to serve Christ simply for the reward. You're not going to dangle the reward out there in front of somebody, and they'll say, well, that sure convinces me to be a Christian. I want that. There is no person that lives that way. No person wants the reward because they don't put any value upon it. 
The only way that you'll ever want the reward is that first you must be regenerated and in regeneration there is a desire and there is love produced for Christ. So the love is already there. And Jesus gave us the extra incentive of the reward. And he wants us to serve for the reward. Why? Because he likes to bless us. He wants to give us things. You can't beat knowing Jesus Christ. He not only saves you, but he wants to bless you with all the benefits that he has in heaven and in this life as well. You know, there's some people who are always longing for heaven all the time. You know, there's not so much wrong with that. Uh, They long for heaven all the time, and they act as if this life is so miserable that they can't wait to just get out of here, be dead, and be done with it. Christ doesn't want you to live that way either. He wants you to enjoy your life here in this way. And I'm not talking about necessarily the pursuit of some kind of happiness. But he wants you to enjoy your life here in this way that serving him is your life. That that's what you want to do. You like your life here because you want to serve him. So don't think that life is just so miserable that I have to get out of here at at any cost. God's not happy with that either. You haven't done anything noble by having ideas like that. No, while you're here, do what God called you to do. This is what Paul did. He said, uh, said, my life is Christ. And while he was here, it's all Christ. And let's, let's be concerned with that and do that thing. And then when we die, okay, let him take us when he takes us. Then it's going to be gain. So we serve Christ for the reward. Listen to what Paul says when he came to the moment of death, I mean, when it was actually very near for him, Second Timothy chapter 4, he said, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only but unto all them also that love his appearing. So it's not just the face-to-face meeting with Christ. That's primary. Heaven is its own reward. But he was also expecting that he would receive a crown of righteousness. He's expecting the reward for his service. And Paul piled up many rewards. He endured many things. But I don't think there was one thing that he endured that he did for a selfish purpose. He endured... Because his life was Christ. Now, one of the essential elements of salvation in Christ is reward. Do you understand this? Listen to what Hebrews says. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, we need to understand that verse. The reward, first of all, is Christ himself. He's the reward. Eternal life is a reward. But I think we would surely have to say, from all the other places in Scripture that we've read about, especially like Ephesians chapter 1, where it speaks of the inheritance of God's people, that the writer there in, uh, in Hebrews would not also have in mind this vast inheritance that God will give us because we are his. All things that Christ have has is ours. And so death was not a problem. Paul was going to gain the world to come and the riches of his inheritance. Now let me close with this thought tonight. 
that every demand of life and every expectation in death are met in Christ. Christ satisfies us in every area. And when you contemplate life, what do you want? Some people say, most I think would say, well, I want peace, I want contentment, and I want happiness. Christians and non-Christians alike pursue those goals, only they pursue them in different ways. How they pursue them is entirely different. We know, we know that Christ meets and more than meets all of those goals for us. We know that it, we find peace in him. We know we find contentment in him. We know that we will actually find happiness in him. And then Christians and non-Christians also have expectations in death. And how they pursue those expectations is also different. The non-Christian has no hope that life after death will be pleasant. Now, he hopes that it will be, but he doesn't have any assurance of that. There is no assurance that life's going to be pleasant or he's going to be in the place where he wants to be. But as a Christian, we have sure hope. We have the absolute hope. We know absolutely for sure where we're going to be, what it's going to be like, and what God's promised for us. If you're a believer, you know that. Now, here's the thing. Looking at what Paul says, we have to consider, is Christ everything to us? Now, it's a difficult goal to live, or difficult thing to live as Paul lived, and that is to push everything outside and to be consumed only with Christ. That's a very difficult thing to do. But when you're able to come to that place, if you are, as you're in that process of pushing the world out of your life, then you learn very quickly that death is not really a problem for you. If it comes, it comes. That's not to be worried about at all. We accept it gladly. And before it comes, we want to serve the Lord to the very best of our ability to have our lives consumed with him. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your many blessings upon us. We thank you, Lord, for salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. I do pray, Lord, that each of us would set this goal, that we would want to be as much like Christ as Paul was, to live for him as Paul did. And we know that will take away a lot of the things that we pursue in life that are worthless, that will end up in nothing. So many times we trade uh, all these perishable things for life for things that are imperishable in the glories of heaven. Lord, help us to be different people, to pursue you and you only. And Lord, may we live our lives for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.